In this episode, we pick up where we left off last week, talking about the state of Alabama and its problem with corruption. This is Dare to Defend, a campaign podcast with Alice Martin. She's running for attorney general, and we're right there with her. I'm Brett Janik, and this is episode nine, Faces of Corruption, part two. It's my understanding that he was indicted in 2015 um, and that he was placed on administrative leave, but still collected $260,000 while on leave. He was originally, as you say, found to have pocketed $6,500. Don't the leave payments raise just as much of a question about uh, the efficacy of the system? Why, Why was he allowed to receive all those payments? Well, I think that's a question that is a good one for Alabama A&M alumni and for the governor and for the trustees to ask of the president of Alabama A&M, because I suspect there are many people that could have been served by the $260,000 in salary that he received during that time while he was on administrative leave. I was in the office of attorney general as the chief deputy when that indictment was brought. And just so the listeners know, uh, we have a process of indictment review process. The prosecutors write up what we call as a prosecution memorandum. It outlines the facts, the evidence we have to establish the facts, the charges, why they believe those are the right charges, and a copy of the indictment. And then that is approved uh, up the chain. And in this matter, Roll was approached and he was told, you need to leave your job, you need to pay, pay back what you have falsified, and you can leave with this plea deal uh, of a misdemeanor, and we'll be done with this. He did not want to do that. He was indicted, and then he was placed on administrative leave. The university, all they said was, well, we know he did move things, and in fact, he did move, but he didn't use two men in a truck to do so. So what the university's president did was allow him to stay on the payroll for two years. And then uh, the current attorney general allowed him just a couple of days before the jury was to be seated in 2017 uh, to plead guilty to a misdemeanor if he would uh, leave the office. I don't think that sends the right message. I would not have agreed to such a plea deal. I would have had the jury trial. I believe that he would have been convicted by the jury of the felony of theft of property. And uh, then I think we would be in a different situation. But what we have now is a man that won't have served a single day in jail for a theft of over $6,000 from a university because he chose to create, and he has pled guilty to this, to create a forged document from two men in a truck. And I suspect there are many people throughout the state of Alabama that have come up with some kind of scheme to steal $6,000 from some program that didn't get a pass like this. And here is this man, highly educated, number two in one of our universities, and he is just given a slap on the wrist. I sense I sense from the story that these universities have a public aspect to them, obviously, but they have a ton of autonomy to run their own affairs. Do you sense that because of that, there uh, may be rampant 
corruption within those organizations, that the lack of public oversight is more pronounced in in institutions like our public universities? I don't know if I'd use the term rampant, but I certainly found it in the two-year college system in multiple colleges because, you know, it resulted in multiple college presidents being removed from office, some prosecuted, uh, some resigning. Uh, but what I know in Alabama A&M was that you had two trustees, one that was very concerned about this and other kind of abuses and wanted things done about it and tried to come and get the assistance of the attorney general's office on cases like Roll. You had one of the trustees, uh, a fine businessman who chose to resign as a trustee rather than just sit there and be part of what he thought was a lot of inaction. And you have trustees in general wanting to, you know, really um, protect and insulate their organizations from any reputational harm as a result of crime. And of course, you've got schemers and people that will break rules and break laws in any kind of organization. What I would prefer is to see open and fair government and transparency and compliance programs where they are trying to find their problems before they grow into crimes and deal with those. And just sometimes it feels as if uh, they are not taking on that approach. You've also mentioned in the past, Alice, uh, an example of corruption that occurred at the Alabama Licensing Board for General Contractors. I wonder if you could tell our audience about that case and and how that's another example of corruption in the state of Alabama. Uh, sure. This was a case that arose back in uh, 2016, I believe. This was a case involving Nancy Sappho. She was a 52-year-old woman, Pike Road, and Christy Easterling, 48, of Prattville and each pled guilty in December of 2016 in Montgomery to one count of officially of intentionally using their official position for personal gain, which is a Class B felony, and for one count of criminal possession of a forged instrument, which is a Class C. But the scheme was that both of these women worked at the General Contractors Licensure Board in Alabama. And you probably have some people listening to this Uh, that know that the purpose of the General Contractors Board is to protect the safety and welfare of Alabamians by ensuring that general contractors who are working on projects such as our schools and hotels, highways, that they meet a minimum technical and financial standards. And so they are required by law to pass a competency test. And they're also required to submit certain financial documentation that would indicate that they have the financial ability to reliably engage in a large construction project. In other words, you're not going to get down the road with them doing work. In a couple of months, they're going to be bankrupt and they can't finish the job and then you've got a problem. And what these two women were doing is simply selling licenses. They had people approach them that had failed the test, that did not have the financial statements uh, that were needed to get the license. And they sold it to them in exchange for cash. And over the course of the scheme, and it was investigated by the special prosecutions, 
unit of the attorney general's office when I was working there, they were able to establish that together the two women had taken over $92,000 in bribes. And so the face of these victims could be the general contractor who lost the opportunity to get a job to build a project uh, to one of these general contractors who wasn't entitled to be licensed. And you asked before how how we get these cases, and I've said they've come from different ways. They might come from a a whistleblower. They might come from um, word of mouth. It might come from a newspaper article that we read and we say, you know, we want to do just a little digging, and then you find some evidence and you open a full investigation. Or it might come from the Department of Public Examiners. This particular case came from um, a man who went home and uh, the wife knew that he had not passed the test. And he told her that he had gotten his license. And she said, well, how did you do that? Because you didn't pass the test. And he said he paid off someone down at the license commission. And the wife was not pleased with her husband's corrupt act. And she actually called and reported that to law enforcement. Now, she later regretted that because she figured out that that was going to get her husband in trouble, and it did. But that's exactly what led to um, this investigation and to, I think, a good result of uh, these people uh, having to plead guilty to that. I think the more of the story there is uh, stay in the good graces of your wife or you'll have the attorney <laughs> general calling you. <laughs> Maybe so. That doesn't happen that often. <laughs> Well, it sounds like the AG Special Prosecutions Unit is really racking up a lot of victories in this space. Um, is this the only arm of the AG's office that explores such cases? And how did the Special Prosecutions Unit come about? What is sort of their focus? Just if you could tell our listeners about that unit specifically. Sure. It is my understanding that the Special Prosecutions Unit was established by former Attorney General Luther Strange during his first term in office. And he came into office at the beginning of 2011. And I believe it was established shortly thereafter. A number of people are familiar with the name Matt Hart. Um, He is a Deputy Attorney General and he heads that unit. That unit has agents and support staff, you know, paralegals and support staff and attorneys that are embedded together in one area of the building. And those agents generally have a fair amount of experience in what I would call white collar and financial crimes, which is what prosecution of public corruption is really about, because you do follow the money in these cases. People don't commit corrupt acts generally without having money involved. That's why it's a thing of honest services that they haven't rendered because they're not uh, doing it for public service, but for private gain. And that unit has former uh, retired federal agents, FBI, I believe IRS, and uh, they have forensic auditors. So they have a great deal of subject matter expertise in this area. And I believe over these years, I don't know the exact number of cases that they have made, but it is certainly in the double digits. And to my knowledge, it's really the only unit in the state that is uh, for state government, I should say, uh, doing these kind of cases. Of course, your U.S. attorney's offices can also do federal corruption cases. Now, you asked a question within the attorney general's office um, when I served there from 2015 
until March of 2017. The procedure was that if there were allegations that dealt with ethics laws violations, so that's what we would consider the corruption cases, those would go to that unit. Uh, So they solely were responsible for that type of case. It did not go elsewhere in the office. Um, And when I came into the office in 2015, of course, Speaker Hubbard was under indictment. That case was uh, yet to start for trial. Uh, The unit had two attorneys and uh, one attorney that was just had one foot, you know, out the door and that had a number of agents. But seeing the need to ramp up the capacity of that unit, uh, especially in light of a trial where Mr. Hubbard had a good many people on the other side, I was able to move four uh, more attorneys into that unit and added to the agents. Um, so that that's important to have that built up. Uh, now, I understand um, over the last year that there's been attrition in that unit is now um, back uh, smaller down to maybe two to three attorneys. How would uh, AG's office under you begin to solve the problem of public corruption? Does it involve greater support for the special prosecutions unit or are there other steps that you can take to really root out corruption in the state of Alabama? You know, I think that um, the model that we had when I was a U.S. attorney was a good one. The Northern, the North Alabama Public Corruption Task Force would meet on, I believe, a quarterly basis. The U.S. Attorney's Office would meet with the Attorney General, with the Department of Examiners of Public Accounts, and other agencies to talk about what they were hearing and cases and evidence that they might be gathering in various kinds of cases. And from that, we were able to develop a number of cases and collaborate. Um, If elected attorney general, I would want to do the same thing statewide. I would want to reach out to my uh, partners in the attorney general's offices, which I know all of the three um, Trump Uh, U.S. attorneys. I've worked with those uh, men, and I would want to say, let's do this on a statewide basis. And I know it is a justice uh, priority. And then we would talk with the various agencies because corruption cases don't just come through um, the Department of Examiners, but we have found corruption cases that have come through us, to us, through the Ag Department before, through the Workers' Comp Department before. Name an agency And there's probably somebody trying to figure out how to get money improperly out of that agency into their pocket. And so I would do that. I would I would come up with an organized task force approach, um, much as we've been successful in doing in in drug cases. Well, let's hope uh, you're elected and you're able to implement those changes, because this is certainly a very important issue for Alabama. Thanks for uh, joining us today, Alice, and look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you very much. Dare to Defend is an 1819 Media production. To learn more about Alice Martin and her campaign for Attorney General, visit her at www.alicemartin.com. I'm Brett Janik, and we'll see you next week from the trail.